This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We've been looking forward for many weeks to bringing you Chris Hedges on today's program, and we're pleased to note that he will join us in our second segment today. Chris Hedges was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times and has previously authored What Every Person Should Know About War, as well as War as a Force That Gives Us Meaning. His current book is titled American Fascists, The Christian Right, and The War on America. His book opens with a quote from Blaise Pascal, who noted once that men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Please stay tuned for our talk with Chris Hedges in segment two today. But let us start the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which is really quite an epic date uh, in history, April 12th. On April 12th, 1204, in what's called the Fourth Crusade, Venetian and French crusaders stormed and sacked Christian Constantinople, which had not been conquered in 900 years. Talk about war in the Middle East going not the way you'd hoped. On this date in 1633, Galileo went on trial for heresy, for promoting the belief that the earth goes around the sun. He was convicted and spent the rest of his life under house arrest. The Catholic Church did finally admit to its error in this case, 361 years later in 1992. On April 12, 1861, the American Civil War began as Confederate shore batteries opened fire upon Union-held Fort Sumter in South Carolina's Charleston Bay. Three days later, newly elected President Abraham Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteer soldiers to quell the Southern, quote, insurrection, unquote. On April 12, 1945, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the longest-serving president in American history, died of a cerebral hemorrhage just three months into his fourth term. He was replaced by Vice President Harry Truman. On April 12, 1961, Walt W. Rostow, senior White House specialist on Southeast Asia, reported to President John F. Kennedy the time had come for gearing up the whole Vietnam operation. A resistant JFK told aides that he would uh, expand the war in Vietnam just as soon as they could convince General Douglas MacArthur that you could win a land war in Asia. Some people think that attitude contributed to the gunshots that erupted in Dallas on November 22, 1963. And finally, on that same date, April 12, 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin made the first successful manned spaceflight. During his flight aboard the spacecraft Vostok 1, the 27-year-old test pilot also became the first man to orbit the Earth. Anyone old enough to remember that event can surely recall how the nation was stunned by the news. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about this event later in this segment. April 12th certainly was an epic day in history. I was in fact forced to leave out a few items that normally would have made the grade. All right, our quote of the day comes from Alexander Dumas, who once said, Rogues are preferable to imbeciles because they sometimes take a rest. Actually, we have a second quote of the day, but I'm going to save that one for the top of segment number three. Which leads to our quip of the day from the immortal Benjamin Franklin, who once said, Wise men don't need advice. Fools don't take it. 
And I'm not sure if it's a quote or it's a quip, but it certainly comes from the duh file. This is the headline from December 20th, 06, which I had to say from the San Francisco Chronicle, which was as follows. Repeated tours raise GI's stress, Army says. We have two statistics of the day. The first one I think we've used before, but I'm so startled by it that if we have, I have to use it again. It is as follows. 1.3% of the United States surface is paved. This will lead uh, momentarily, I think, to one of the most insane news stories I've read this month or any month. But we'll save that one. Our other stat of the week comes from foxnews.com. By a 67 to 22% margin, American voters think a Democrat will win the next presidential election. Also included in the poll was the fact that 59% of American voters say the candidate with the most money wins elections. While I love this one, 25% say the best candidate wins. Of course, in fairness, we do tend to think that this poll may have been influenced by people observing who is occupying the Oval Office at present. All right, and from the mailbag, we have the following item to share. Apparently, Sunday night, the Save KDRT Benefit Concert at the Delta of Venus raised over $1,000 for our sister station here in, uh, in Davis. We have Brendan to thank for that information, who notes that we can uh, follow the progress of KDRT on their website, www.kdrt.org. We would encourage you to do this. And uh, we love getting emails like the one we received a few days back from Andrew, who noted that he was a Davis expat now living in San Diego, but he listens to our weekly podcasts and said he appreciates what we're doing. Andrew, you're welcome. Thanks for the feedback. And uh, Oliver had an interesting observation to share about our mentioning the fact that the improvised explosive devices, at least in 50% of the cases, appear to be uh, explosives that were filched from Saddam Hussein's former stockpile. Oliver noted that as the war began, there were some side remarks about Saddam's forces having declined to resist the invasion and going underground to wage a well-prepared guerrilla war. He noted that uh, surely weapons caches, such as the one credited with arming 50% of these IEDs, were an element of these preparations, noting that perhaps the Iraqi and American pre-war plans both remain in play, with the former's plans looking as though they're prevailing over the latter's. And uh, we talked about Senator John McCain's visit to a Baghdad market on last week's show. The Sunday Chronicle noted that McCain's rosy assessment of safety on Iraq streets was mocked after his recent visit to a Baghdad marketplace, prompting him to tell a television reporter that he misspoke and now regrets the comments. Unfortunately, Senator McCain is sticking by his defense of the overall war effort, predicting that failure there would be catastrophic. McCain is beginning a high-profile effort this week to convince Americans that the Iraq war is winnable embracing the unpopular conflict with renewed vigor as he attempts to reignite his stalling bid for the presidency. Stalling bid is a good description for it. I think we, Mr. McGillan, do you have an appropriate sound effect? Yes, we expect the McCain uh, campaign to reach terminal velocity after it's fallen about a thousand feet. And we would say at this point, good riddance. John McCain has done some good things in the past six years, but it appears he's now lost his mind. We would also refer you to former Radio Parallax guest Robert Parry's excellent reporting for ConsortiumNews.com. I'd like to quote from an item he filed last Friday. 
While other politicians might spin some facts in a policy debate or tell a fib about a personal indiscretion, President Bush and Vice President Cheney act as if they have the power and the right to manufacture reality itself, often on matters of grave significance that bear on war and peace or the future of the nation. Even in the face of growing public skepticism, Bush and Cheney continue to invent new lies and retell old ones, seemingly with the goal of at least keeping their gullible right-wing base behind the faux reality depicted on Fox News, the Rush Limbaugh radio show, and other right-wing media outlets. So on April 5th, Cheney showed no hesitancy in telling Limbaugh's listeners both an old canard about how Saddam Hussein's Iraq was in league with al-Qaeda terrorists and a new one about how U.S. military withdrawal from Iraq would, quote, play right into the hands of al-Qaeda, unquote. It is interesting to note that, as Perry pointed out, one of Osama bin Laden's top lieutenants, known as Ataya, wrote more than one year ago, quote, prolonging the war is in our interest, unquote. Oh, and if the name Osama bin Laden isn't familiar, uh, that was the guy that attacked us on September 11th. He's hiding out somewhere in Pakistan, a country run by our valiant ally, Pervez Musharraf. We should uh, probably remind you that on next week's program, we'll be doing our annual KDVS pledge drive effort on this program to see what we can do to raise some funds to keep us on the air, bringing you the kind of news that we think you'd like to hear, that you're not going to hear in a lot of other places. We hope very much in 2007 that we can bring you uh, Michael Pollan. He's been on our short list of guests for for some time. I think we're going to be able to pull that off. We're delighted to note uh, that the outlook that he puts forward in The Omnivore's Dilemma seems to be gaining traction. In fact, the uh, April 2nd issue of Newsweek had the following. As if counting calories weren't enough, now you can calculate the carbon cost of your food. Starting next month, Bon Appetit, a food service company that operates corporate and university cafeterias, will test a low-carbon diet designed to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming. Instead of, say, a tilapia fillet frozen using electricity from coal-fired power plants and flown in from China on a carbon dioxide-emitting jet, customers can choose a dish using locally produced ingredients. Michael Pollan, of course, has been championing this idea of keeping track of the carbon cost of foods, and, uh, and this, is, this is really a very good sign. And um, along this same line, we have the following startling article from The Economist magazine, one from their editorial pages. This, in general, featured prominently in, in The Omnivore's Dilemma. But I've, I've got a quote from The Economist. It is not often that this newspaper finds itself in agreement with Fidel Castro, Cuba's tottering communist dictator. But when he roused himself from his sickbed last week to write an article criticizing George Bush's unhealthy enthusiasm for ethanol, he had a point. Along with other critics of America's ethanol drive, Mr. Castro warned against the, quote, sinister idea of converting food into fuel, unquote. America's use of corn to make ethanol biofuel, which can then be blended with petrol to reduce the country's dependence on foreign oil, has already driven up the price of corn. As more land is used to grow corn, rather than other food crops such as soy, their price also rises. And since corn is used as animal feed, the price of meat goes up too. The food supply, in other words, is being diverted to feed America's hungry cars. Well, there you have it. Radio Parallax has already agreed with Michael Pollan on this issue, who also agrees with The Economist magazine, who also agrees with Fidel Castro. We think that's a fairly broad base of opinion. Uh, 
But of course, uh, that opinion is not shared by George W. Bush. And speaking of Bush, uh, George W. Bush uh, recently named Republican fundraiser Sam Fox U.S. ambassador to Belgium. Bush bypassed Congress in doing this by making the appointment while lawmakers were out of town on spring break. Democrats had denounced Fox for his donation to the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, that should be in quotation marks, during the 2004 presidential campaign. The group's manufactured lies about Senator John Kerry's military record in Vietnam are viewed by many as a significant factor in the Massachusetts Democrats' alleged electoral loss. And yes, we say alleged because we're going to bring Stephen Freeman back on the program to talk about election 2004 in the months to come. And I want to talk about the craziest idea I've seen all month, but we're going to put that off, I think, till segment three. And instead, take a moment at this juncture to look back at April 12th, 1961, when the Soviet Union launched Yuri Gagarin into space. That epic moment when man first orbited the Earth. Joining us now from his home in Berkeley is Misha Brodsky, former UC Berkeley mathematics professor and currently president of Lincoln University in Oakland. Misha, you were about 10 years old at the time. What do you remember about Yuri Gagarin's flight? I was 10 years old boy. And I was living in Soviet Union, in Soviet Union at that time. This was Khrushchev time. And Khrushchev time was kind of inspirational because, um, you know, Stalin's time was a depression. And it was, you know, terrible concentration camp. And Khrushchev opened the concentration camp, and he started kind of open competition with the United States. So if Stalin said, you know, the United States and all, you know, capitalist countries are enemies, we have to be ready for the war, everyone who is saying something wrong is a spy, and so on, Khrushchev opened the competition. He said, they're successful, but we will be more successful. So all this cosmos business was related to competition with the United States. Oh, yeah. So everyone knew about this. So it was like, Soviet Sputnik is the first Sputnik. So who will be the first? You know, after that, the Soviets, they sent dogs to the orbit. <laughs> like Like Ayana and some, uh, some other one. I don't know. It was two racing dogs. So, and after that, it was who will be the first man in the orbit. It was competition. Oh, yeah. Khrushchev said, in 20 years, we will produce more milk than the United States. And it was impossible. And it was a famous kind of cartoon that uh, Russian or Soviet... Um, in, in, in agriculture, they mainly had women. So, and this woman, I don't know, like cow, cow girl, is a head, is running on, on, on a cow, a head of an American cowboy. <laughs> so it was all about competition. So when, when Gagarin, this event happened on April 12th, it was like we are winning in the competition. It was so kind of exciting. I didn't care about competition, honestly, myself, because I was from a family which basically was critical, very critical about the regime. And, you know, my father never, you know, always said just these are gangsters. And it was true. But still, you know, I was a boy 10 years old, and I remember then when it happened, and I heard it from a radio. And the radio was everywhere, this kind of cable radio, including public areas. So they said, you know, our guys in Cosmos and so on. And I was running to the school. This is what I remember clearly. I ran to my school to inform my classmates. This was what I remember. Now, but, you say cable radio. We don't think of cable as being part of radio here in the U.S., but I guess in the Soviet Union, it was radio was on cable. Yeah, it was. I don't know is it a proper uh, term for, for saying it's cable radio, but this was a radio 
from cable. You couldn't get it as radio waves. It was basically translation of, you know, from some sport which came by cable, special cable. Every apartment had a cable like that. Well, when you went to school and you told your, your, the kids that uh, Gagarin had, had gone into space, was there, wasn't everybody excited? Everyone was excited. Actually, everyone knew about that. And a lot of people run is similar to me to school to, to share this news. But basically, everybody knew already. Well, it was quite a blow. I remember being uh, here in the U.S. We thought we were going to get an astronaut up, and there was a lot of talk about it. And they had these seven men that were going to be our, our men to go into space. And when, 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 when Russia beat the United States to it, I got to tell you, it, was, it shocked the whole, uh, the whole of America. I understand, but you see, you have to, to, to feel this difference. In Russia, no one knew anything. This was important. See, you, you, you kind of were informed that we have seven men and one of them will fly. So we didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah, it was all secret. And until this moment, there are some rumors that it was a flight before Gagarin, which was unsuccessful, and the guy was, you know, basically killed. I, I've heard that. I've, I've never heard that there's credible rumors. Do you, do you put any credence on that? I don't know. I cannot say. But I can say that if it happened, we would never be informed, definitely. So if it would happen, it, you know, you have to go through some documents of KGB. Uh, a, KGB controlled everything. Or if it could be recorded from, you know, outside. Today, we've satellites which are controlling everything, you know, you would, you would be able to see it, but at that time you could not. Well, Misha, when I was in, in the Soviet Union, six months before it stopped being the Soviet Union, uh, we, I had some great adventures with you, and I hope in some future installments of this show you'll come back and we'll talk a bit about some of, the, some of what we experienced. Okay. All right, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I'm pleased that Mr. McMillan is using this great tune as our bumper music leading up to break. Midnight in Moscow by Kenny Ball and his jazz men. We'll be back in a moment with Chris Hedges, former New York Times Middle East correspondent. Nearly two decades, Chris Hedges was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times and other publications. Mr. Hedges was, in fact, part of a team at the Times which won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of global terrorism. 
Chris Hedges began as a freelance correspondent from Latin America during the dictatorships in Argentina and Chile. He has covered war in El Salvador and later the Balkans, before becoming New York Times Mideast Bureau Chief. We first read what he had to say from an interview in Christina Borgeson's Feet to the Fire, and have since quoted from his essays on America's Holy Warriors and his 2004 essay, The Christian Right and the Rise of American Fascism. Chris Hedges is a minister's son, a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, and author of three previous books on religion and war. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the Nation Institute and teaches in the program for American Studies at Princeton University. His current book expands upon that 2004 essay. It's titled, American Fascists, the Christian Right and the War in America. It is a review of the cultural battleground which has been raging for decades and outlines in clear language what the Christian Right's goals are for America and why we need to fight back. He's been on our short list of desired guests for some time. We're pleased to have him join us today. Chris Hedges, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. The juxtaposition of the term fascists with American is no doubt jarring to many people. Can you start by defining how that term we associate with Hitler and Mussolini uh, indeed applies to many in the Christian right in this country? Well, you're right. It has historical connotations. Uh, it's a word that's probably been thrown around a little too loosely. But I, I think when you look generically at what it is that makes up the Christian right, what it is they believe, uh, and you uh, place that against the belief systems of traditional fascist movements, um, many things square up. And I actually begin the book by quoting a small uh, section uh, written by Umberto Eco in his own book, Five Moral Pieces, called Eternal Fascism, looking 14 ways of looking at a black shirt, in which he describes what he thinks are the 14 most important characteristics of a fascist movement, which of course, can exist in any democratic society. So this is a book that really tries to make the case that uh, rather than a religious movement, uh, the radical Christian right in this country is a mass political movement uh, that bears within it the seeds of a religious fascism and has many characteristics of classical fascist movements. Well, you start out early in the book with a quote from uh, Joseph Goebbels, the information minister of the German Nazi Party which I'd like to, to quote at this point, you noted that he wrote, the best propaganda is that which works invisibly, penetrates the whole of life without the public having any knowledge of the propagandistic initiative. Can we talk about some of the language we hear used by the Christian right and how it might perhaps be decoded to explain how this is really is something that is the best propaganda because it's sort of invisible? Well, that is exactly uh, how they do communicate. It, it, it is in code, and they're very effective uh, at that. They cannibalize language, as all totalitarian movements do. You know, they take terms like liberty and twist, twist it inside out so that it has a kind of newspeak quality, which Orwell would have understood. Um, you know, liber we all you know, have a, a pretty sort of general notion of what liberty means, but liberty in this movement comes to mean liberty that uh, comes when one submits completely to Jesus Christ, and of course uh, that by implication is the by those who claim to speak for Christ, by those who submit to those church figures who, who run this movement. Um, you know, that, that, of course, is not a form of liberty. It's, it's a form of slavery. And, and the movement is shot through. So they're able to speak in the comforting language of traditional Christianity and American patriotism, uh, but they've hollowed out the words to mean something else. Well, American Fascists appears to spring from your 2004 essay, which, which I'd found at theocracywatch.com. The website there noted that no major publication would print the article at that time. Did this sort of force your expansion into a book form? Yes. 
a, a variation of that article was published in Harper's, but it didn't bear much resemblance to it. You know, many, many people are uncomfortable going on the assault against this movement. Uh, I think that they give this movement a religious legitimacy that it shouldn't have. And I think because I come out of a church tradition, I mean, not only did I graduate from seminary, but I grew up in the church. My father was a Presbyterian minister. Part of my writing, and certainly part of this book, comes from the anger at, at a tradition that formed me, shaped me, nurtured me, and that I value deeply at being sort of manipulated and used, you know, in, in very nefarious and dark ways. I mean, that this, this movement speaks about acculturating American society uh, with the Christian religion, but in fact what they've done is acculturate the Christian religion with the worst aspects of American capitalism and American imperialism. And, and I think for those of us who value the church tradition uh, and, and inform our lives through our faith, this movement is an anathema. I mean, not least of which is because it calls in the end for the achievement of secular power. Well, you use the term dominionists to define those elements of fundamentalist Christians whose worldview is cause for worry. Who are the dominionists? Well, dominionism, and, and you're, you're really right to pick up on that term, because these are not traditional fundamentalists. They're not traditional evangelicals. I mean, traditional fundamentalists called on believers to remove themselves from the contaminants of secular society, to shun political involvement. Traditional evangelicals, people like Billy Graham, always warned followers about getting too close to political power. He himself came to Richard Nixon's defense during the Watergate scandal, something for which he has always uh, you know, expressed a great deal of regret. This is a new movement. This is a, a radical mutation. Uh, this calls for the creation of a Christian state, a Christian America. Now, they, we use terms like evangelical or fundamentalist to describe them, but they're, they're something we've not seen on the American landscape. Although we've had many religious revivals going all the way back to the Second Great Awakening of 1740, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, and these dominionists have fused the language and iconography of American Christianity with the language and iconography of American nationalism. Uh, and I covered conflicts such as the former Yugoslavia, uh, where that kind of fusion leads to a very toxic and dangerous and intolerant uh, political system. Well, the Christian right seems obsessed with the Bible's alleged prophecies in the Book of Revelations. You are a Divinity School graduate. Can you talk a little bit about this very strange part of the New Testament and how it's already rather bizarre passages have been further altered into something like the left-behind bestsellers? All totalitarian movements, certainly fascist movements, embrace this notion of catastrophic violence as a way to purge or cleanse the earth and create the utopia, whether it's the thousand-year Reich or fraternité, égalité, liberté, or the second coming of Jesus Christ or a worker's paradise. I mean, that, that's what totalitarian movements do. And so uh, that embrace, that, uh, and, that, and then the, the pornographic sort of depictions of violence that are very much part of this movement, um, you know, at once thrill and, and terrify believers. The Left Behind series is a fascinating phenomenon. It has, of course, no biblical legitimacy at all. The word rapture never appears in the Bible. Most of the major constructs in this whole strange, violent eschatology isn't, are not biblically based at all. Um, you know, they're just creation after creation, fiction after fiction. But by sort of cobbling together some of the most uh, questionable passages of the Bible, 
both from the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, they have managed to kind of give a sacred authority to this frightening drive uh, to, you know, perpetuate this notion that it the, that we are headed very soon towards the end of history in which, you know, all non-believers along with the earth will be eradicated and and believers will be lifted up into heaven naked in this bizarre spiritual Darwinism. What this really is an expression of is a theology of despair, a notion that nothing in this world is worth saving, and that the greatest and most glorious moment in human history will come with the world's destruction. And when that is what you believe, then global warming doesn't matter, wars in the Middle East don't matter, terrible poverty and and loss of jobs don't matter. I mean, in essence, the worse it gets, the closer you get to Armageddon and the better it is. Well, can we talk about that in regards to this sort of a subplot to our war in Iraq? Um, We see a lot of enthusiasm for war uh, for those who think this is going to hasten the second coming of Christ. Former GOP strategist Kevin Phillips thinks that this element of political support has really been overlooked and, and in fact, highly significant to the support for the war before it began and, and now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this maximalist foreign policy comes that the Bush administration has adopted comes right out of the Christian right. Um, the fact that, you know, this administration doesn't, in essence, engage in diplomacy. It speaks to the rest of the world almost exclusively in the language of violence. This administration has done nothing to restrain the hand of Israel. The, the, the situation between the Palestinians and the Israelis is the worst it has been in, in decades. I mean, for, I think probably one could argue since the inception of the conflict began with the, with the uh, creation of the uh, Jewish state. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Christian right, uh, which provides a, a radical and important uh, segment of this administration's base, uh, fervently embraces very childlike and simplistic vision uh, that I think is translated into many of the actions of the administration itself, certainly with regards to how we view Islam. I mean, the, the kind of demonization of Islam and, and Muslim culture and, uh, you know, the things that are said now within mainstream society about Muslims uh, are, are patently racist. I say that as someone, as an Arabic speaker and someone who spent seven years in the Middle East. I mean, I don't think could be said about any other ethnic group in this country. We're speaking with author Chris Hedges about his book, American Fascists. I want to quote from page 23 um, from your book. You noted the Bush administration has steadily diverted billions of dollars of taxpayer money from secular and government social service organizations to faith-based organizations, bankrolling churches and organizations that seek to dismantle American democracy and create a theocratic state. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's, you know, one of the most frightening things this administration has done, is take taxpayer funds to empower groups that discriminate on the basis of belief and sexual orientation, peddle pseudoscience, and proselytize, attempt to, to, to recruit people to their, into their network and, and uh, indoctrinate people with their ideology. Uh, this has been a tremendous empowerment for these groups, and one that I think you know, is, is pretty clearly anti-constitutional, uh, certainly anti-democratic. While this administration, uh, I don't think, can be characterized as theocratic or fascist, it's certainly uh, gone a long way to uh, drawing uh, groups that 
really have as their goal the destruction of our open society or empowering groups that have the goal of destroying our open society. Well, your book doesn't delve directly into election politics so much, but a couple things struck me when I was reading it about our most recent presidential elections. First off, how in the 2000 election, Al Gore was accused by the Republican right wing of trying to steal the election by judicial fiat. You've noted that radical groups often project their actions onto what they say others are doing, and that Florida 2000 certainly seems to be perhaps an example of that. Yeah, that, that's something Richard Hofstetter understood in his essay, The Paranoid Politics of, or The Paranoid Style of American Politics. Um, you know, for instance, you know, when, when they talk about uh, creationism, which they have, you know, managed to sort of infiltrate this pseudoscience into our, some of our public school systems, they say, well, you know, evolution is an ideology peddled by scientists who are secular humanists, who, who are, are, you know, are perverting science because they're uh, subscribed to the ideology of secular humanism. Well, of course, that's exactly what they do. They, they pervert science. They've created creationist pseudoscience uh, that purports to use scientific method and, of course, is awash in scientific jargon to prove scientifically uh, that the Earth was created in six days and that the dinosaurs lived uh, at the same time as human beings. So oftentimes what they accuse those outside the movement of doing expose their own motives and because I think they're, they're very conscious that um, they must present a facade that they can only sort of go so far at the moment uh, in their drive to uh, recreate a society that is ruled by ideology as, a, as opposed to in a society that honors and promotes dispassionate and honest intellectual and scientific inquiry. I can't help but interject at this moment uh, quite a laugh I got out of your book in describing the Creationist Museum where they were talking about dinosaurs being taken on Noah's Ark and how, yes, the Tyrannosaurus Rex did have those big teeth, but he could have used those to munch on watermelon and cantaloupe. <laughs> when you get down to the details, it exposes the absolute absurdity of the belief system. I mean, I was at a seminar where they were teaching Christian teachers how to tell their students about creation, and, and they had to get through that difficult question of the fact that God created light on the first day and the sun on the fourth day, and the instructor was telling the teachers, well, what God did is he created a temporary light. Well, there's nothing in Genesis that even hints that God created a temporary light, um, but they have to sort of bridge those absurdities together to propel their belief system forward, and the Creation Museum in Kentucky this $25 million monstrosity with animatronic dinosaurs and is a perfect example of that, where dinosaurs don't, didn't eat human beings in the Garden of Eden because they were plant eaters and everybody got along. So why did T-Rex have big teeth? Well, you know, so he could crack open coconuts. I mean, it is, it is, I think when one sort of narrows down what it is they're trying to shove down their, their throats, it's absurdist. Well, you've noted there's two institutions the Christian right uh, does not criticize, the, the police and the military, and that in certain groups like these mercenary contractors we're seeing in, in, in Iraq or even on the streets of New Orleans, there's this disturbing element of, uh, of a private militia under some sort of Christian authoritarian leadership. Can you talk about America's holy warriors a little bit? Yeah, that's a really important point because, you know, all of these movements cannot come to power unless they build close alliances within the military and law enforcement, and, and the movement is working very hard to do that. Uh, they control about 50% of the chaplaincies in the armed forces and the service academies. 
they are carrying out uh, direct efforts, groups like Christian Embassy, to proselytize within the Pentagon, holding prayer breakfast. They have a promotional video that was taken off the website when it got exposed, but it had generals in uniform talking about how God advises them and you know, as they work on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And we have the rise of this mercenary army in Iraq, groups like Blackwater. Blackwater is headed by Eric Prince, one of the charter members of the radical Christian right. He, he sees this mercenary army as an extension of the U.S. military. Um, and what happened when Hurricane Katrina struck, as you mentioned, these guys with their black uniforms, wraparound sunglasses, SUVs, and automatic weapons appeared on the streets of New Orleans. And I think that um, that, for me, was a very frightening moment, because should we enter a period of instability or chaos, or should we suffer another catastrophic terrorist attack, the deployment of mercenary forces, essentially outside the law, run by ideologues like Eric Prince that are directly tied to the Christian right, um, really uh, presages perhaps one of the most dangerous moments in, in our democratic history. Well, you warn an American fascist about how extending unlimited tolerance towards those who themselves are intolerant, and of course Germany in the 30s provides a great example of how a minority might suppress a majority after first asking for such unlimited tolerance. How do we in America hold in check those whose real goal is to limit our rights when they call for tolerance? Well, you know, tolerance is, of course, what makes a democratic society function, the mutual respect, the the belief that there are, are other ways to be, uh, other forms of faith that have as much legitimacy as our own. Uh, this is a movement that doesn't accept that, and it has locked tens of millions of people, uh, many of whom come from the margins of society, into closed hermetic systems uh, where they, everything, all information, news, entertainment, health and beauty tips, everything gets filtered through this ideological prism, this belief that um, that there are forces of Satan uh, hidden, you know, whether it's within the ACLU or the mainstream media or the major universities, uh, that uh, are out to destroy a Christian America. And these forces must either be eradicated or converted. There are no other options. And when you preach or you're allowed to disseminate uh, this kind of binary worldview, good and evil, us and them, uh, you know, that there is only one legitimate way to be, then you, you come close to preaching civil war. And unfortunately, this message is not challenged. These people locked within these closed information systems, which are extended into Christian schools and colleges, are essentially not hearing uh, other voices and being told that all other voices in the society are demonic and should not be heeded, listened to, or given respect. Um, at that point, I think a democratic society has to step in and prevent the demonization of whole segments of the society by a radical movement. I, I saw that in the former Yugoslavia. This is essentially what Slobodan Milosevic did. And the, you know, in that democratic opening before the war, they kept trying to domesticate Milosevic, bring him into the political process. And, of course, it didn't work. He, he, he poisoned the civil discourse, and, and that's what these people are doing here. Well, having seen this in, in Serbia, in the Middle East, a uh, mixture of civil war, fanaticism, religion, um, what agenda or agendas do you think the, the American Christian right is advocating that we need to dig our heels in to stop, first and foremost? Well, there are many. 
I mean, the school voucher system is dangerous, the assault on gays and lesbians. I mean, you know, the assault on gays and lesbians is really an attempt to strip American citizens of their civil rights based on their sexual orientation. Uh, but, you know, once they finish with these people who they classify as social deviants, they have a long list of social deviants that they'll go after. And you're legitimating tactics that we don't want to legitimate in a democratic state. Um, you know, they, they will turn on women, they will turn on scholars, they will turn on artists. And this, you know, by the way, is a very common tactic on the part of totalitarian movements. The first decree that Hitler passed when he took power in January of 1933 was banning all homosexual meeting places. One of the first book burnings was in the Berlin Institute for Sexual Science. And, of course, he was cheered on by most of the German public and the German churches. He used that notion of purifying the society, of family values to promote um, his very dark agenda. And I think this movement is doing the same. Hate crimes legislation, I think, would help. I mean, I would go to events and they would say horrible things about gays and lesbians and then say, you know, but if I said this in Canada, I'd be arrested and everyone in the room would laugh. But I think ultimately the engine of this movement is personal and economic despair. It is the fact that we have shunted aside tens of millions of Americans in this society. Um, you know, we have... We have uh, uh, less manufacturing jobs in this country than at any time since the Industrial Revolution. These jobs that have been shipped overseas have not been replaced uh, by jobs that provide, you know, a viable and decent income. Many people are working at wages at two-thirds less than what they got, you know, in steel mills a couple decades earlier. Uh, there's no hope of, of, of getting a job comparable to what they had had. They're working without benefits. They're working without job security. A state and federal assistance programs have been slashed. Communities are crumbling. Schools are dysfunctional. You know, communities are disintegrating. And, of course, all the attendant ills that come with that are, have infected their lives, from domestic abuse to alcoholism to broken families. And, and these people are ripe for manipulation by these demagogues who promise a world of magic, angels, miracles, who, who say that God will walk with them and God will protect them. And, and now that we've finished and stood by as the working class in this country has been abandoned and betrayed, we're seeing an assault on the middle class. Anything that can be put on software can be outsourced and is being outsourced. So that, you know, we are giving rise to an oligarchic state where the we already live in a country where the top 1% control more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. That figure alone should terrify those who care about a democracy. And you can't sustain a democratic society with those kinds of injustices and inequities. That's not a new idea. It goes all the way back to Plutarch and Thucydides when they wrote about what was what kept Athenian democracy viable. Uh, and this rise of this mass political movement wrapped in the American flag and clutching the Christian cross is what we get for that deep mutation. And I think ultimately, if we want to blunt this movement, we as a society have to step up and reincorporate or reenfranchise these people who have been pushed aside back into the fold and blunt the rise of the corporate state. Otherwise, our democracy is doomed. The book is American Fascists, the Christian Right and the War in America. Our guest has been author Chris Hedges, former Mideast Bureau Chief for the New York Times. He teaches at the Program for American Studies at Princeton University. Chris Hedges, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And you never ask questions when God's on your side. Oh, many a long hour I've called on.
that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you. You will have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. We are back. I mentioned at the top of the show that we had another quote of the day that we need to start this um, this segment with. Actually, let me let me build up to this. I have to frame this properly. I think this comes from an obituary from Bernd Freytag von Loringhoven, the Wehrmacht officer who survived Hitler's bunker. On April 29, 1945, as Soviet troops were blasting the remains of the Third Reich into rubble. In Adolf Hitler's underground Berlin bunker, 31-year-old Major Baron Bernd Freitag von Loringhoven was serving the Nazi Führer. He, uh, according to reports of his, uh, of his death, noted that he was shaken after Hitler had declared that he wanted all Germans to fight to the death. He apparently told Hitler at that point he wanted to, uh, to leave the bunker to try and rally whatever troops he could find. His real intention was... To survive, said von Loringhoven, as Hitler shook my hand and wished me luck, I saw a glint of envy in his eye. His job, prior to his escape one day before Hitler committed suicide, had been to gather military data, then compose maps and reports, which he presented to Hitler in daily briefings. He later admitted that his reports in the end uh, depended mainly on what the enemy's civilian radio announcers had to say. Said the L.A. Times, even as he worked 16 hours a day, the young major took note of the mad cast of characters that surrounded him. Party Secretary Martin Bormann skulked, he said later. Reich's Marshal Hermann Goering was dressed like a general in an operetta. As for Hitler, he could be very charming. He was a real Austrian. But as the end drew near, von Loringhofen said he came to see Hitler's true colors. Bringing us to our second quote of the day, which is, quote, You realize he was an evil man, full of hatred for everybody. Note that at this point in time, the young major had been serving the Wehrmacht for six years. He took part in the invasion of Poland and of Russia. But it took him to literally the last day in the bunker to realize, you know, he was an evil man, full of hatred for everybody. Here's something I find even more amazing about this guy. After he got out of the bunker and managed to avoid uh, the Soviet army, he reached the American lines and surrendered to the British. He was a British POW for two years. In 1956, he joined the West German army, which eventually promoted him to a three-star general. He spent three years in Washington, D.C. on the planning staff for NATO. We talked in our last segment about fascists in high places. Well... There's an example for you. And I'm sure at this point some of our loyal listeners have noticed that we didn't do the good, the bad, and the ugly at the top of the program. So let's do it now. The 
according to the Week magazine, last week was a good week for air travelers when the Federal Communications Commission dropped a plan to allow cell phone use on commercial flights. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for executive privilege after a Connecticut man captured following a high-speed car chase tried to talk his way out of trouble by telling cops he was Vice President Dick Cheney. Reportedly, John Spurnack, 42, was promptly tasered, handcuffed, and sent for psychiatric evaluation. Radio Parallax, in fact, does not know what happens when Vice President Dick Cheney is pulled over, but we think that tasered, handcuffed, and sent for psychiatric evaluation is not a bad idea. And this last week was an ugly week for free expression. After Sacramento's Scandia Fun Center adopted a no-screaming policy on its new ride, the Screamer. A large propeller that whips passengers 165 feet into the air, then sends them on a 65-mile-an-hour 3.5 G-force loop down toward Interstate 80. Suggested a park spokesman, if you feel like you might make a noise, cover your mouth. Reported the Sacramento Bee, after riders are buckled into their seats, staff members lay down the law. No profanity, no screaming, no noise. Break the rules, they warn, and the ride will be cut short. (laughs) The paper noted, the rules make it sound more like boot camp than an amusement park ride. The no-scream rule on the Scandia Screamer was adopted to appease neighborhood residents. This week marked the 25th anniversary of the Falklands conflict, the war between Argentina and Great Britain. Britain commemorated the war with expressions of regret for the deaths on both sides. Conversely, in a great example of people not learning a lesson that should have been beaten into them, the Argentinian vice president, Daniel Scioli, said, The Malvinas are Argentine. Neither war nor the passage of time changes reality. The Falklands War, of course, was launched by the Argentinian dictatorship in a desperate bid for popularity. It ended 73 days later in humiliation as Argentina's ill-equipped conscripts surrendered to the British task force. Some good did come of some good did come of the stupid conflict. Uh, the dictatorship of Argentina fell shortly afterwards. All right, let's return to the northern hemisphere for a startling example of stupidity, which is as follows. I'm going to quote from Matt Weiser's April 7th article in the Sacramento Bee. A national directive by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers could devastate scenery and wildlife habitat in California by forcing Central Valley flood control officials to chop down virtually all trees and shrubs on their levees. A compromise is being negotiated, but unless the policy changes, tree-lined banks on 1,600 miles of levees in the valley could be transformed into barren culverts within a year. Said Gary Hobgood, an environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Game, quote, As it stands now, California has lost 97% of its riparian habitat since the arrival of Europeans. So we're down to this last thread of habitat. 
At issue is a National Corps of Engineers policy now being applied to California. It requires levees to be cleared of all vegetation to preserve channel capacity and allow access for inspection and repair. The policy is largely based on conditions on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, where ample wildlife habitat exists between levees and the water's edge. In California, unfortunately, levees were built close together after the gold rush to create high water velocities to flush mining debris out of rivers. In most areas, there is little space between levees and the water. Vegetation on levees provides the only riverside habitat. We should note uh, that the Army Corps of Engineers are the same idiots, and yes, there's just no other word for it, that we reported a couple weeks ago... Uh, spent $32 million on the West Sacramento River levees uh, and noted that there's now, they're now falling apart. The April 1st uh, Sacramento Bee has a rather large picture showing this uh, slip on the levee, and, uh, and it's worthy of note, perhaps, that there are no trees and shrubs evident in the photograph, and yet the levee slipped anyway. We plan to cover this item extensively in the weeks and months to come because this is mind-bogglingly asinine. I'm sure about this because I saw what the Army Corps of Engineers, and what is the Army doing building levees all across America? Oh, and by the way, the work they've done on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers is now having to be redone everywhere because their effort to speed up the river and shorten the course that uh, barges and boats would take has caused so many problems, they're now lengthening the river once again. I'm, and no, I'm not making that up. In my hometown, which is Fremont, California, about 100 miles from this radio station, the Army Corps of Engineers stepped in in the early 1970s on a supposed flood control effort on Alameda Creek, where it comes out of Niles Canyon. In 1915, Charlie Chaplin filmed The Tramp at this location, and it shows a rather pretty wooded area, which you know, most of it still is today. However, where the Army Corps of Engineers got involved, they created a giant culvert, which is reminiscent of what happened to the Los Angeles River down in L.A. Thirty-five years later, the landscape along the side of the river looks like something worthy of the Sea of Tranquility. It's mostly big rocks, small rocks, and intermediate-sized rocks. If any listeners are going to be in the area sometime in the future and you're there on Mission Boulevard where it joins Niles Canyon, take a look. In this case, a picture is surely worth a thousand words. And I'm sure it provides an example in this half a mile stretch of what the Army Corps of Engineers would like to multiply by a factor of 3,000 throughout the Central Valley. And uh, by the way, in the greater Sacramento area, they just conducted a phony baloney election supposedly to increase our flood control. This resulted because the Army Corps of Engineers and local politicians in bed with certain developers decided to develop the North Natomas area in a floodplain. When it was subsequently revealed that the levees aren't as safe as they were made out to be, they've decided to raise all of our assessments for flood control, even if you don't need it. So people like myself where the flood control recently got so much better that we weren't required to have flood insurance, are now being asked to foot the bill for what's going on out in Natomas. I voted no, but uh, there was, since there was absolutely no organized opposition to this measure, I'm sure it's going to pass.
and doggone it, we're just about out of time. In fact, we are out of time. Our thanks to Chris Hedges, former Mideast Bureau Chief for the New York Times. His new book, American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War in America, is worth a look. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Please join us next week for our annual pledge drive. If you'll pledge $100 on next week's program during our hour, we will include a DVD of Iraq for Sale, Robert Greenwald's excellent documentary. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.